Hello and welcome to Systematically, your semi-weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, talking to you from my walk-in closet in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Morning, Ryan. Hey, John. Uh, we don't have Robin today. Uh, she's visiting friends, so we're sad to miss her. But we do have our our good friend, Ann Carpenter. Hi, Ann. Hey. Um, Ann was very gracious and generous and got up very early uh, California time to join us this morning. Uh, so we're immensely grateful for that. And we're going to talk uh, a little bit about her book. And then uh, but what she really wanted to talk about was a new project. She's working on some new questions she's tangling with, and it uh, deals with figures that Ryan and I both like a lot um, and one that uh, we don't know as much about. So let that be our teaser. We'll get into that in a little bit. But first, for frivolity purposes, um, if you follow Anne on the Twitters, uh, do you want to give people your, your Twitter, Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, it's at Catholic Kung Fu. Which is yeah. just terrific. Um, I, I once had someone say to me, you know, that that looks like something else. It looks like <laughs> Catholic F.U. And I was like, I was like, yeah, that's fine. That's, I'll take that too. Sure. Also that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's really funny. Uh <laughs> Anyway, if you follow her, you will occasionally uh, be greeted with threads on the aesthetics and historical sensibilities of video games. And uh, so I, I wanted to ask the, the three of us, just in general, sort of what, what are our favorite video games and why? Um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Anne first. Um, and you know, if you can't pick just one, oh, whatever. It's a podcast. Who cares? <laughs> um, it's probably my all-time favorite video game is uh, Zelda: Ocarina of Time, which was, I, I think, the first truly three D uh, Zelda. And um, I don't remember how old I, I was. Pretty young when it came out, but yeah, and. Uh, um, the subsequent Zelda video games are kind of the what I like about them is Link kind of he's the perfect video game main character because he had some personality but ultimately not a lot <laughs> and so you can very you can very easily be your little avatar um, but the games themselves have a lot of mythology and so they're really fun to play in um it's like the best of hack and slash video gaming um but with mythology instead of just blood and guts <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and uh i i enjoy your um your screen grab adventures through the worlds created in the assassin's creed games i've really oh, enjoyed yeah. Uh. <laughs> I love that. I'm a huge historical nerd, so I will just I'll play all of those just because I wanna I wanna run through 17th century colonies. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let me climb on the the on the Parthenon roof. It'll be great. Yeah, it'll be awesome. <laughs> all right, Ryan. What's your favorite video game? 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) So here's, here's my, my take. Um, I think I was, I was probably like, I don't know, seven or eight. It was the, it was the early to mid nineties. And my parents thought, got what they thought was like the greatest Christmas present of all time that they gave to me and my sisters collectively, which was a Sega Genesis. Um, for, for younger listeners, a Sega Genesis was a, uh, a 16 bit cartridge uh, system, uh, sort of the rival to the Super Nintendo. And uh, while the Super Nintendo had Mario as its kind of flagship property, uh, Sega had Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, And they were forever at war with one another. But, uh, you know, it came with like a six-pack cartridge that had Mm -hmm. basic games, including Sonic the Hedgehog. And then uh, this was right as uh, the industry was moving to 32 and even 64-bit systems. And so you could buy the 16-bit ones for pennies on the dollar. Um, And so I I did enjoy playing, you know, the the two-dimensional games. And then I remember uh, my dad, who was much more into it than I was, got us the the 32X, uh, which was the ultimate gimmick. Um, it was, was that the thing big like, piece like a, of plastic yeah. plugged into the cartridge slot on your Sega. It was like a that UFO theory, that docked on your Sega. Exactly. And it in theory boosted the, uh, the system up to a 32 bit system. No, it, did, it actually did. It, it, <laughs> it, it had to do it physically to just, you were adding processing power to the little machine. It was really great. Yeah. But then it had its own line of 32 bit. Sega games, um, including one that I, I think was, if I'm remembering it right, was called um, Virtual Fighter. Oh my uh, god! Which yeah. was a a like one on one sparring mm. game, but it I'm was it was simulated 3D, and this this sort of became the you know the 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 official game of the house. But I was like, this is too much. This is, I, <laughs> there are things happening uh, in, in three dimensions and I can't figure it out. So I'm just pushing buttons at random um, and this is not fun. So I basically bowed out of video games around, you know, 1996. It was Virtua Fighter that did you in. And then I just never came back because uh, it, it seemed like all of the, the things that were giving me anxiety were just getting worse. Um, yeah. There's you like know, there's the, a whole there's a whole like subunit of you in existence so much so that there are uh, there's a whole field of video games now that are basically old school they basically draw on all the the older styles of games and so gamers are really into those and, and not on yeah yeah so so you know I in college like when the you know roommates would be playing video games I was just like utterly uninterested so i don't don't do those yeah uh you're you're like baltazar you're gonna just go read some well except not so noble because um my my basic take was that video games um require too much of me to to 
qualify as leisure. And so uh, they're too active, in other words. Uh, so, so I wasn't like, oh, they'll rot my brain. It was like, oh, this is too much work. I'd rather just watch a movie um, where I can be an utterly passive participant. Uh, and, you know, that, that basic evaluation of the situation is pretty much uh, held true to this day. So, wow. yeah, I haven't, you- haven't touched a video game console in... Boy, just years and years. Preference? I mean, what? What? You know, in your in in ye old sixteen bit days, did you have a? a, a <laughs> oh, the question, your original question. Uh, like an actual favorite, or or just a, a preferred? Did you did you really stick to one? Was it where you know was it Sonic or what? I mean, pr- that was that was probably the one I probably Sonic Two was yeah. the one I made the most uh, you know With progress in. What? that was sonic and tails uh i don't think so i think that was was still just just uh sonic uh doing his thing i don't remember there being sidekicks on spinning and stuff yeah Mm. okay trying to trying to defeat the the guy with the the red handlebar mustache yes and the big sunglasses Uh, yeah to be portrayed by jim carrey in the forthcoming film evidently Oh, you're kidding. I kid you not. There's a forthcoming film? Oh, yeah. So, um, and the, yeah. The, the animation they did for Sonic just made no sense at all. Uh, he, look, he looked like a, uh, like a hedgehog that got caught in the rain. Um, like, it just, it was, a, it was like weird, greasy hedgehog fur, rain, mangy yeah. thing. On. That was in the Blue Man group for some reason? Yeah, exactly. Um, like, yeah, it, uh, and people were mad. Which I have like to have the the free time and vital energy to be able to be mad on the internet about the, how they animated Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> um, like if only. But yeah, uh, and then also you have apparently it's going to be the sort of like the origin story of the villain whose name I don't know because I, my nerd cred is not that good. So uh, we're going to have to like like have empathy for him and stuff. I don't know. I, I mean, well, that really seems to violate the black and white morality of video games of the era. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, probably not, right? It just doesn't seem like, how would they even muster that? Anyway, so that's, um, that's a thing we're doing. I watched the, uh, to totally turn, make, take a left turn. Last night, I spent 12 minutes watching the trailer for both uh, Top Gun Maverick and for uh terminator whatever the new one is called i can't oh. remember um the new terminator one where linda Han- mm-hmm. hamilton hamilton comes back and those reboots i am just like they're not reboots or sequels or whatever the hell they are uh, i am absolutely here for those um i am i am with it uh did you see the the one for um the new uh Brad Pitt sci-fi one yeah, it looks cool too. It looks great. Yeah. Um, I, the question I had on Twitter was, uh, how is the new Cats not a Robert Zemeckis film? Like all that motion capture, glowy CGI stuff. I just, that, that, that's, that that's by the guy who made uh, the Danish girl, I find uh, incomprehensible. But mm-hmm. my wife sent me without any context texted me the trailer for that um just knowing my <laughs> my my 
um, very abiding, uh, at best indifference to Andrew Lloyd Webber, but mostly, uh, dislike. Yeah. Yeah. There's antipathy to be had. Um, anyway, uh, so me question video games. I, I don't play video games anymore because I, uh, would tend to play them to the detriment of hygiene and sleep and eating. Um, it's a good thing that there's like an autonomic nervous system that can just like take care of a lot of things like breathing and stuff, or that would go by the wayside too. Um, so, but, uh, I would periodically, life would afford me binges of video games. And, um, I'm trying to think what the most recent was. Oh, this actually is a good connection. So, uh, so every once in a while, we didn't, we owned a Super Nintendo and would, I would play that a little bit as a kid. And then we never got anything after that because uh, I think my parents saw the writing on the wall. Uh, this kid cannot be trusted with this technology. And, um, but occasionally I would be indulged and we would rent a video game system and a game or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we rented a PlayStation and I played Metal Gear Solid from like <laughs> when I woke up until it was dark and until my parents went to bed and then until it was midnight. Uh, I don't I like. I don't know that I ate. Like I played. I was into Metal Gear Solid. The like persnickety perfectionism that it invited you to. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like make a I mistake was, and you die. Yep. Exactly. Or or even just like wanting to just like because it would give you. I remember if, if in that one they would give you stats and stuff at the end of like. Yes. No. Yeah. End of the level. Yeah. Oh man, I was so into that. Um, so that's probably all time that, that was my favorite, um, in a super unhealthy way. And then my, when my sister lived with us uh, a couple of years ago, she was sort of our nanny and she's big into video games. Um, and she had, uh, some later Metal Gear game, uh, that where, uh, Snake is like doing missions on (laughs) like at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and it's and it's beautiful and the graphics are great uh, and I played that late into the night a few times too I was super into that, um, but yeah otherwise I don't. There was a period in college where like I would stay up until three in the morning playing weird video games with friends and eventually I was like no I can't I, this can't happen I have to pass my classes this is expensive. Um, I, I I will say I did have a video game curiosity within the last decade. Hmm. I was. Many years ago, when I was taking a doctoral seminar with uh, Andre Orlov mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and learning about, you know, uh, Enochic Judaism, and then discovered there was a video game called Metatron. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there is. Yeah, uh, which which is um, ostensibly about you know the angel Metatron, mm-hmm. um, which sounded hilarious as a premise for a video game tailored to people who will have never read any Anakic literature. Uh, and we brought it up in never class. Never touched a video game. <laughs> we, we brought it up in class as a, as it was a, as a kind of um, student body discovery um, to find out that like Andre and other like Anakic scholars had been like consulted <laughs> on this oh, video. God bless them. That's so terrific. <laughs> Oh, I want to hug yeah. those people. <laughs> no, like, like, 
underneath often very like unjust working conditions <laughs> video game creators are, are are legitimate creators they really want to write a story it turns out yeah mm -hmm. and god bless them that's great i think that's terrific um all right that's that's maybe adequate silliness um so and we've been wanting to have you on the show for ages and ages so we're glad to have you and um you you uh have this question that you're you're working on right now but i want to set that aside for just a minute because um people probably know you from your uh your book they have poetics with notre dame press from remind me what year if i were a better podcast host 2015 2015 thing. Yeah. um and uh for those for those who don't know um what's what's theopoetics about um you you are sort of you're not coining the term but you're deploying the term uh, in in a little bit of an idiosyncratic way for the right. for yeah, broader discussion yeah it's it's sort of uh unique to Balthazar use of the of the phrase um so the the book kind of does two things um the first thing it does is it tries to describe uh Hansers von Balthasar's method of of theologizing which is a combination of a serious metaphysical philosophical inquiry and also sort of serious um poeticizing uh, of phraseology of uh, kind of borrowing of aesthetic modes in his argumentation um it's not just that he uses analogies it's that his his method of arguing is is borrowed from artistic methods he actually will do both at once or switch between them that kind of a thing so the book is is on the one hand about explaining that strangeness of Balthazar, because uh, readers will usually pick up on one and not the other. Mm. And so I try to describe how they work together in his thought, um, ho hopefully with the goal of helping people understand him better. Um, and my sense too is that in the, in the broader discussion, often, those two modalities are are not just sort of distinguished, but they're often opposed to each other. Um, yes, not specifically among Balthazar scholars, but just sort of out there. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. In kind of in theology lands, they can it, it, it's sort of presented as a choice. You can be interested in metaphysics, or you can be interested in not metaphysics. Um, and for Balthazar, that's that's not a choice; it's a false option. Mm. Um, so yeah, you don't have to choose between them. Um, then the, the book, but because of that goal of the book, it's also an argument about the way theological language works. Um, and so a lot of the book is, a, is actually about like sort of what is um, the world, what does metaphysics mean, and what is language according to Hansers from Balthasar, such that he thinks theology can work like this? So, yeah. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, and uh, I, you know, I'm always I'm always interested in things where sort of the the common dichotomies are shown to be actually a kind of some kind of dialectical interchange, some kind of dynamic, yeah. you know, poles. Um, so, uh, can you give a kind of uh, off the top of your head an ex- an example of sort of how that works, whether in Balthazar or or somewhere else? Because um, I think probably because of the the common assumption that sort of poetizing and metaphysics are these opposed terms, it might be hard for people to think, okay, well, if that's the case, like, what, what does it look like? How does it how does it go down? Um, okay, so um, I've been I've been rereading Balthazar's uh, theological dramatics. So this is the the middle series in his trilogy um which is a a lot of things but it's a at least in part a theology of history and um in like the in the very last book um he does this thing where he reviews the scholastic axiom that um qualities of eternal being and qualities of created being have to have some kind of uh, relationship to one another on some kind of perfection in God has to be a quality of created being in some way, although in a created way. Uh, so he, so it's very old school uh, outline of, okay, well, God is goodness, so creation must be good, that kind of argumentation. Mm-hmm. And then he just drops in with uh, Charles Agee, um, this poet, to transition to, to modern ways of thinking about created being, which seems like for out of nowhere to do mm-hmm. that. But what he's doing there is he's borrowing Agee's layering of repetition to try and show the way that created time isn't purely linear. And if created time isn't purely linear, that has certain theological consequences. And so there you've got a, a basically a poet making points using repetition because if you repeat a line in poetry, you also develop it. That's the way of just that's just the way it works in in art. But it also shows the way um, chronology works, even in human experience. Mm-hmm. Right, the experience of a memory is not just transporting me to the past or anything like that. It's the it's a repetition in time. Comedians do this all the time, right? They have the rule oh, yeah. of threes, right? Oh, yeah. Where they'll 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 set up a punchline, they'll drop the punchline, they'll proceed, and then they'll call back, quote unquote, the punchline again in a new context. And it has to both be funny because of its original situation, mm-hmm. which which you're meant to recall, but it also has to be applicable, situated, contextualized as funny in this later setup. And then yep. presumably, you know, nice. rule of threes, you try and hit it one more time. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's not, it's not, yeah, it's actually not the same. It's right. never the same. It is a repetition, but it's not the same. And that's actually like really interesting, not just about ideas, but about 
what it implies about our existence in time. And Balthasar sort of develops it from there. And there you have a really, really concrete example of Balthasar deploying both metaphysics and a kind of uh, poetic frame to make a serious theological argument. He's not speaking as a poet. He's still transposing the poetry into a different mode. Um, but he's using it to do serious theological work. Yeah. That's great. At, at the risk of um, wasting an opportunity to do a, a, a good transition to what you're working on now. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I've always appreciated and found extremely useful in what you, what you did in that earlier work was that um, you give a response to what I think is maybe the most common tendency that I see when people read Balthazar, which is um, the elision of those two registers. Um, so that the, the, the poetic imagery or the poetic method um, is assumed to be uh, or asserted to be metaphysical in a really straightforward sort of like mode of predication. And so you wind up with all of these like kind of insane uh, arguments about quote unquote what Balthazar says mm-hmm. that are um, basically kind of literalistic metaphysical readings of a experimental procedure of deploying and recontextualizing the poetic or the symbolic in a theological way, but yeah, and, it, which creates sort of, all of these be, problems. How can there be yeah. distance in the Trinity if God isn't a body, huh? Right, exactly. No, yeah, exactly. Because they kind of they they fail to do the work of transposing that he's also doing. My my kind of like my hottest take on Balthazar is is the most boring take. It's, it's he's a good Thomist. Yep, he's really good at Thomist. We around here. He went to he went to like school with all of his other Thomist buddies and learned Thomas really well. Like that's my really boring take. Around here we call those high temperature takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he he knows all that stuff, but he's not he's not a naive. Um, like his his earliest book is very naive about art, but it, that really quickly dropped from his work even by the time you hit his dissertation he's learning to transpose um art from its original context into uh that one's more like philosophical in his dissertation because um artists are asking questions about the world through the medium of their art but the scholar is asking questions about the art through the medium of their own field, which changes the art. When I look at the art, it, it changes the art because I have different questions than the artist does. And I'm actually not overriding the, the original artistic meaning. I'm asking further questions, that's all. I once presented on this 
to a room of people really interested in in religion and art and i realized by their body language that they were really mad at me because i was telling them that art wasn't theology <laughs> and um so i paused because i saw their body language and i and i explained so you're artists you all think of yourselves as artists and that's great and what i'm actually telling you is that theologians can't tell you what to do because because your task is artistic and they were really happy with that <laughs> they sort of saw the they saw the like other end of that but that was actually really fiercely defending what they do as a thing integral to them yeah and and not subsumed by the great umbrella of theology is kind of like theology the borg uh from star trek that just kind of assimilates everything yeah, yeah. um so so yeah so let's let's turn now then so because that's a good that's a good kind of um prologue to what you wanted to talk about today so you have a question and it's a kind of version of a question that Ryan and I both are asking all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than try, me trying to summarize it, why don't, why don't I let you characterize it, set it out the way that you, because inevitably I'll transpose it into my question. So um, right. let, let's let everyone hear your question in your terms and then uh, we can, we can discourse. Yeah. Actually, I really enjoy. There's a whole group of people, not just Marquette people, who have all. Um, they're all turning to the question of tradition in different ways. It's really cool to watch uh, theology, Anglophone theology, starting to sort of make this turn. Um, anyway, so. I think one thing we're all kind of coping with is the 19th century. We're, we're not over the 19th century. Uh, it's really I, long, I hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, always, I always like to, to do variations on this one, which is the 19th century is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Right, yes. Yeah, it's, it's still here. I was actually speaking to some, some decolonial people on, a, on St. Mary's campus, some, some scholars, I forget what department they're in, but they agreed. They're like, yeah, 19th century. Uh, anyway, um, so John Henry Newman, he's not the only one to say that, but John Henry Newman points out that the church is subject to, to history, subject to time, the way that Jesus was. And this has a whole lot of implications for how we understand, in particular for him, church doctrine. And so he posits this idea that we all sort of these days really love, um, sort of kind of supposedly over the, the, the trauma of it. Doctrine develops, he says, it sort of develops over time. And um, that means that on the one hand, doctrine, doctrinal expression changes over time. Um, but for 
him that's not a reversal that's actually a kind of learning so he's trying to make sense of historical data which is that you have like early christians saying all kinds of things and um finding them agreeing on stuff is actually much harder than you would think but it's also not um totally random the work that they're doing there is a sense to it and so newman kind of systematically puts together this idea of development to both connect historical christianity to its different periods of time and posit a kind of unity over time and so that's really a that's a real copernican revolution in in theological thinking like thomas aquinas knows about a certain he has a certain sense of development and he has a he has a sense that history is a real thing and tradition is a real thing he quotes it all the time and he develops it all the time but it's really really newman and others who um start to assemble what that actually means for theology um to be a, his a historically contingent discipline um my question is sort of that's great that's awesome john henry newman i love it what is the world such that that's that doctrine can develop what is what is time and what is history such that tradition can actually be a thing i'm not doubting that it's a thing but i but i want to know what the world is um yeah that's my intro that's my meandering intro no no that's great um and that's and that's particularly interesting um insofar as uh it seems i mean okay so one thing that, that ryan and i are going to like about that right is that's a sort of properly um speculative theological task right where um your question you, you are your, your question isn't okay well then what the hell is doctrine in light of this development right yeah. but rather um well then if that's if that's true then like what what is this place <laughs> right yeah yeah what is this what, what is the situation into which doctrine uh emerges and through which it perdures such that it has this character and is mm -hmm. itself right in, in having this character i think there's a there's a tendency to think of um well there's like there's the sort of uh pure kernel of doctrinal truth but right. because of the sort of uh, the sort of imperfections of this world, uh, that pure kernel of doctrinal truth is then subjected to the various mitigations consequent both upon the finitude of creation and also upon the fallenness of creation. Um, and that, uh, in the in the in the precise philosophical sense, begs the question, right? Because mm -hmm. it assumes already at the beginning um, that it knows both what the world is and what uh, what doctrine is. Um, yeah. So, so I, I really like, I like the sort of, um, 
situation of the problematic that you haven't set out there. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Ryan, if you have anything you want to add, because you, I know you've thought and, and written a little bit about Newman's characterization and development mm-hmm. of doctrine. Yeah. And characterized it as, as learning. You focused on a little bit on in the past, uh, his account of it is sort of organic metaphor. There's a sort mm-hmm. of, there's a, almost a kind of vitalism to his way of treating it. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, Numa, not unlike the Catholic Tubigans mm-hmm. t- tend, uh, you know, there's, the 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 relationship between the two is complicated. Yeah. Um, Newman doesn't speak German or read it, um, which is a problem uh, for mm-hmm. if you wanted to actually like <laughs> read, you know, Muller. But um, you know, there's a common um, romantic tradition. There's a there's an Anglophone romantic tradition and a German romantic tradition that sort of stand behind both both crews. Um, that manifests itself in this largely sort of um, organistic kind of metaphor. Um, and my, uh, you know, this is a very common like boilerplate interpretation of the essay on development that it conceives of the tradition as a kind of life. And so um, it has, it has the, character of perdurance and consistency just like you do being john at three versus john at 30 it's there's there's some identifiable concrete identity that subsists over time and yet uh so much about who and what you are changes over that same time and that change is integral not not um accidental necessarily to who and what you are and so um, this becomes kind of the the main metaphor in in the book, and you know that's helpful insofar as it goes. But for me, it's it sort of lacks a kind of um, it, it it lacks the metaphysical determinations to really um, be worked out in a rigorous philosophical way. Um, and so you know I've tried to pick up crumbs that Newman's left down um, and try to uh, develop them in more, you know, explicitly metaphysical ways, especially what he calls the, the note of assimilation mm-hmm. um, that I've tried to um, t- take elements of and sort of pull the thread all the way through using Lonergan and Piaget. But um, you know, I, I, th- I think with Newman in particular, his, you know, that, that work is his, it's his transitional work. You know, he becomes Catholic in the course of writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a work that is kind of hated by everybody on its publication. Um, you know, the, the Anglicans see it as just, um, Kind of oh, what it was this one quote from this that I always love. It's um, it's like Strauss in the garment and robe of a Franciscan, as someone calls it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, so it's accused of being this like pure uh, papalist propaganda. Um, and then the Catholics think it's it's basically just Protestant um, modernist uh, heresy. 
Uh, even even uh, the other the other famous 19th century English speaking convert, Erastus Brownson, just like, hates it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. uh, you know, there's something in there for everybody to despise because it's a kind of Rorschach test for everyone's fears <laughs> about history, right? It's it's that that it's going to be either proceduralized into a kind of of magisterial machine, or that it's just this utterly unwieldy uh, thing that is going to um, cause the the foundation of any any edifice to come to crack and for the whole thing to come tumbling down and in as much as that's a kind of organizing anxiety of the century and even into our own you know uh, i was gonna say thank god we got over that (laughs) (laughs) but it 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 at least gives a context for why somebody like newman or or folks like the catholic tubigans are are searching for a, a rhetoric and searching for a way of um, threading a needle between and beyond all of these different vectors. Because um, it is like there's a lot at stake in the question. It's There's nothing sort of um, cleanly or clinically academic about it. Yeah. You could, you could, you can lose Christianity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All at once. Yeah. Which I have taught Newman, and so I actually have to convince students of this first before, mm-hmm. sure. before I get them to sort of like see how important Newman is. And no, you can no, no, lose no. it, and you can lose it in both directions, right? I think the yes. the you know one is oh no, oh no we might lose it into the sort of dissolution into the plurality of history, um, but but there's the the other direction too, which is that um, you know it can become this kind of um, you know, uh, it, it can it, it can turn Christianity into the the sort of um, sheep's clothing. You know, um, it can turn Christianity into this uh, hardened veneer that can be put up uh, to disguise all sorts of fetid monstrosities. Um, and you know, the 20th century gives us ample examples of that. Um, Lonergan has this line. Um, in a lecture he gave, where he makes this really interesting claim about uh, the essay. Um, you know, he, he references Newman all the time. Newman's one of, uh, you know, probably the three most important influences on Lonergan. But normally when he's talking about Newman, he's talking about the grammar of ascent, um, which probably, as a young man, influenced him more than in almost any other text. But he, he does have this reference to the essay and development where he says, what Newman began in 1845 was not completed or finished until 1965. Lonergan sees Vatican II as the kind of the church finally coming to grips with what Newman had discovered, you know, over a hundred years prior. But, but one of the reasons it took so long <laughs> um, is that I don't think all the pieces are there yet. It's yeah. not that Newman solved the problem and then and nobody paid attention for 120 years. It's that further uh, questions existed um, and had to be pursued. And part of that um, pursuing is passing through, well, Blondell and Peggy. So I guess, you know, and we've talked a lot about Newman, but sort of how do these other 
later figures that um, you've sort of um, coalesced around, how do, how do they develop um, or, or offer a, a unique take on this very 19th century question? Yeah, so with, with Blondell and Peggy, we get kind of the early 20th century, just in case people want to keep a chronology of what's going on. And we're over in, in France. Um, so the, the questions and situations are a little bit different. Um, so Blondell deals with, deals with this problem a little more directly in his uh, history and dogma. Yeah. Um, and there Blondell's dealing with this crisis about the Bible that Catholics are fighting about. And it's, uh, you've kind of got two bad options. Once again, this is, this is a continual crisis of theology. You have two bad options and you don't want to take either one. Uh, so let's create a third. Um, one option is a kind of, um, he calls it an extrinsicism, where you don't you sort of take the Bible as true, but what's really, really true is the truth the Bible introduces to us. And so you end up not really needing history at all or really the Bible. You could have just kind of any symbol in there to just get you straight shot to the truth. We're still doing this, right? There's, there's naive forms of theological interpretation of scripture that, that are arguing that like, this is like what normative scriptural hermeneutics should be. Um, mm -hmm. it, we've got the creeds, we've got the dogmas, um, and we know that those are true. And so a, the true reading of the Bible must be the reading in which we find these truths therein. Right. And they're, and they're there in the specific form of, of the, the creeds, right? Yeah. So there's no, there's not even any breathing room. Um, the other option is what Blondell calls historicism. And that's kind of the, the other driver there becomes history. And so the only thing that's real, really real, is, is the facts of history. And so you can't actually make arguments about truth in any transhistorical or permanent way because the only thing you have are facts um and blondell thinks they're both wrong and and, they, and we get that other one too right we get we get the kind yeah. of arguments that like um well the, the the creeds must be aberrant because uh paul says something different than them Right. Yeah, you'll get you'll get people saying uh, probably the most common version of this is early Christians didn't believe that Jesus was God because of X, Y, and Z statement that I can find, which is not like Nicaea. Right. right. Or or you get um sort of uh fit, you know uh, you get this kind of idea that there 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 is a is a, a, a word a kind of corruption of the original 
um, sort of Jewish Jesus cult uh, mm-hmm. by uh, Hellenistic philosophical ideas, and the and the right. the pinnacle of this is Homoousia, um, right? Yeah, because that's how ideas work. They just sit out there. <laughs> and- Hellenism over here, right. and you have Judaism over here. Naturally, and uh, you have to choose between them. Yeah, and then somebody spills a little from one bucket to the other, and you have to start over. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. But I'm sorry, I stopped your train of thought. I apologize. Um, no, so those are okay. the two bad options. Um. So Blondell thinks that they misunderstand. Um. Basically. How do I put this? They don't understand what facts are, historical facts are. Good. And and also what truth is. Because um, what he wants to say is that historical facts are fundamental to Christianity, but they're not the same as the truth of Christianity. That's what he wants to say. That's kind of the, the needle he wants to throw. But he needs some mechanism by which to make sure that history and truth do relate to one another. Because um, you're left with these other two options where they really don't. And so he thinks that tradition mediates between the, the facts of history and the truth of dogma. And that's a really interesting description of tradition because usually we think of tradition, and this is not the way Vatican II thinks of tradition, but, but colloquially we tend to think about tradition as a series of artifacts, you know, like museum. Have this great treasure, it's called the tradition. Look at all this stuff. But Blondell says, no, no, tradition is, is mediation. It's the mediation between um, history and truth. And so, and so tradition isn't stuff. It involves stuff, all the stuff of history, but it's not itself stuff. It's more verbal than that. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's in the first instance, it's a kind of operation. And operations have objects. Um, mm-hmm. but but in the first instance, it's a, it's a, it's an act. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one of the key reads of Vatican II that allows the council to actually appropriate Newman is when you read, um, Vatican II's statements about tradition, you get this verbal sensibility. Tradition is the act of handing off. It is, it is the, the movement itself in time of, of, of Christian memory. Uh, and memory, I mean there as in you know, like an active sense, the remembering, the act of knowing itself is, is, is tradition. And, and there's no way to, to really helpfully understand what Vatican II does without that um, verbal quality. I feel like Ryan has something to say about this. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, Ryan, but um, you've done a little bit of work 
on this um, sensibility in Vatican II. If you don't have anything to say, but <laughs> keep going. But, Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's that's something that Blondell does, and this this helps us deal with Newman's problem of what it means to be alive, uh, sort of Christianity to be a living thing that lives in history and has an integral being in time. And by integral, I mean I mean integral, like a an organized self. Um, but there's but also it, oh, go ahead. It's it's also more precise than a kind of living metaphor. Um, were you going to go in that direction? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, because it's, um, it is clearer about the way in which the, um, the principle of life is ecstatic to that which is living. Yeah. Um, and that's what Blondell can really bring, right? That the, mm -hmm. the, the thing that, um, gives action for Blondell efficacy, um, and I don't just mean, and I don't just mean a sort of practical efficacy, right? I mean, I mean ontological efficacy. Yeah, um, yeah. Is is transcendent? Is in his language supernatural? And and I'm I'm always at yeah, pains to that's say. That's where I wanted to go next. Yeah, is is that uh, for Blondell, supernatural means God's at extra agency in general, and not mm -hmm. only grace. Um, theologians uh, are are handicapped uh, with uh, regard to this because because of the sort of antecedent meanings of supernatural. Um, but he has a, for him, supernatural is a philosophical technical term. Um, but it, it means that in every human action, the, the, the uh, qua non of, of the action is itself beyond the frame of what philosophy can, uh, can give an account. And so it is supernatural. Um, and so any act, but an act including the the tradere the the handing on of tradition is an act in which uh god acts um and um yeah and and so then the the act of 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 living that the sort of uh, organistic act through time um is one that is uh in which god is foremost at work and so and so unlike um my dog georgia the the sort of the human element of the living here is one where um, the most important principle of living is one that is, uh, is, is ecstatic with regard to the one doing the living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's for Newman does this too. He's more implicit, um, but even very, very early in his essay on development, uh, he, he has this turn toward community which Blondell also does. So our, our probably our first experience of the ecstasis of our own being is of, of individual toward, toward others, toward community. Um, and so both of them, both Blondell and Newman, sort of immediately start to imagine a kind of living together that's, that's a fundamental part of the communication of of, of being to human beings um yeah which is nice right because it, it it's not just this is maybe uh, uh I, I could get just cornered by 
Kierkegaardians on the internet. Um, but but there, there can be, at least in, in the sort of um, first blush encounter with Kierkegaard that I've had, uh, a sense that you, you get that kind of vertical ecstasis, but you, mm-hmm. don't, you don't always get the, the sense of which, in which, and because that's the thing that is the, the ground of my being, right, the power that gave me rise, it characterizes the totality of my being. And so it's not just vertical, it's also horizontal. Um, Right. And so you get this sort of emphasis on the individual in Kierkegaard that um, now, whether that's a a, a unfair, naive reading of Kierkegaard, I'll leave it to Ryan and uh, others to inform me, but, but at least that might be a helpful contrast as a kind of type. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And that, and that becomes really important to, to Catholics because what it means is that the the trottere only happens together. It really only happens together. It's not under it's not up to individuals alone. It's up to all of us together. Um, and you get this really cool in Vatican II, you get this really cool expansion of the Episcopal frame of Trotteret, which is really clear. I mean, they are they are ordained with a copy of the Gospels over their necks. It's really clear for them. But uh, Vatican II also has the, the, the sense of the faithful, census fidelium, that, that is also a kind of undertow by which the Pradere happens. So the, the, uh, the bishops uh, both organize and attend to the, the, the sense of the total church, which includes us, the people of God. So you only get the people of God together. And so when people, there are sort of two ways theologians like to really, well, I will, I'll say three. There are three ways that we like to shut each other down really fast. The, one of the ways is just by quoting Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> lay down the law. Um, the, the other two are by implying that the other person is heterodox or implying that the other person is not traditional. But these are decisions that we only actually make together because it only actually happens together. And um, it's very hard for just even me as a modern person to remember that. Mm-hmm. That church only only happens integrally as a whole. Um, but I but I want to underline that. Yeah, that I mean that's actually... that's just something really interesting about um it suggests a kind that there's a kind of epiphenomenality to um the sort of internal divisions of church politics. Mm-hmm. Um uh that that what appears to, to, to get back to sort of my, my, uh, my tendency, right. What appears to be a kind of opposition of disconnected, um, monads or something is in fact, a kind of dynamic dialectic, um, Mm -hmm. that there's a negotiation going on. 
Um, if, and if negotiation is too contractual for you, uh, a discernment going on. Um, yeah. And that the discernment is um, fraught and uh, even violent, um, that the discernment is uh, contentious and so forth, um, doesn't denude it of its character as discernment. Um, right. And if you think that it does, uh, maybe you haven't, you haven't done that much you haven't paid that much attention to your own internal processes of discernment. Sure, um, yeah. Right. Uh, right. Why should it be any different when I do it with other people than when I do it with myself? Uh, <laughs> so, um, which is an interesting, right. It's an interesting reframing um, of what in, what in, in sort of theological fact is going on in these unending, often bitter fights. Um, oh sure, yeah. Right, that there's and a... it's not, yeah, and it's not that the Catholic tradition never makes decisions. We do that a lot. Yeah, we have a whole organ for it, um, but it's it's part of a much larger process. Yeah. So I I know we're getting to the end here, but I want to know just as a way of tying together these two projects, because what they share in common in this respect is that um, you're making a theological decision to recontextualize poetry as a resource for um, asking a theological question and pursuing an answer to it. So I I wonder if you could give, I know it's kind of work in progress, but just some of the basic beats of how Peggy sort of um, maps onto layers, expands, complexifies, whatever, um, this more difficult but kind of um, straightforward application of, of Blondell to this sort of Newmanian problem. And I'd love, and I'd love to have you uh, come back another time and, and talk more directly about Begui and um, sort of the relationship between ressourcement and, and revolution. Um, I think that would yes. be a really, just a thing we could just talk about by itself. Um, yeah, yeah, that stuff's fun. I've been I've been translating a lot of that stuff lately, so I I'd like to. Yeah, we'll get uh, we'll get that on the calendar. Yeah. Um. So, I'll 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 I, I'm reading this book right now on on Peggy that was just just published called uh, Carnal Spirit, and and it's one of the things it's explaining is the way that uh, Peggy greatly influenced by uh, Bergson, thinks of, thinks of time in nonlinear terms, which doesn't mean that there is no chronology. There's no like, now and next. He's not denying that there's not that, but just that it's not a pure line. So we tend to naively think of time in, and therefore of history in, spatial terms in terms of like dominoes like one event influences the next event influences the next event and that's kind of all that there is about the event um and if that's all that there is about the event we are doomed we are just it's over already it's just there is no salvation and history doesn't really matter because it's it's only the next thing. Um, 
or and maybe even more strongly than that like and if there is salvation it's terrible like it's it's (laughs) it's what Ivan Karadmatsov is worried about right that we're going to get like paid off by God for like the suffering of children um Mm -hmm. and like fuck you not interested right I don't want that Um, God yeah it's the kind of God of the good place who does math right Yeah. Yeah. yeah Um, it's, it's just terrible. You'd, you'd rather be in the bad place. Um, so Eki, in his writings on revolution, sort of the French revolution, and in his poetry, sort of once he's Catholic, he kind of becomes a poet, which is, which is really interesting. Um, he, he starts to imagine modernity as the thing that really transactionalizes time and it's revolution that's actually ancient in sort of his strange neologism of of ancient because it's a going back to being human it's a kind of he thinks of it in sort of uh even he thinks of socialism as a kind of welling forth of a human striving for solidarity and in solidarity for justice. And the revolution is a kind of going back, therefore, to human being alive. And so that's where you get his idea of ressourcement, is that because human being isn't purely linear, because I myself am not purely linear. I have a memory. I have a self that goes back. And part of being a self is sort of kind of always originally turning to myself and reworking what that is. That's actually the way all of human being works in this kind of non-progressive, non-linear, continual return that's not a repristination. It's a kind of, um, oh, what do I want to? It's a kind of connection with the root of being alive, which means that it can't repristinate because it has the memory for all subsequent things. And so for Peggy that results like in his poems about hope, which is a, he thinks of hope in, in straightforwardly theological terms. Its object is God. And that is a good theological hope there. Like Thomas Aquinas would be really happy. And that's actually fundamental to human historicity. Mm. My willingness to both connect again with with being alive, with the font of, of being human, and my willingness, therefore, to go forward, which is my main task, is not going back, it's going forward. Just keep swimming. Yeah, just keep swimming. I can actually, yeah, the, the way that I can do that, the way that I can withstand my own temporality without kind of collapsing is through this vertical hope, which is a hope in God that, um, that newness really is possible. Because if time is purely linear, newness is not possible. You just have subsequent events. 
in a kind of purely scientific reductive way. But if there's a vertical quality to all human experience of time, then change is possible. Revolution does do something real. Mm. Um, and there can be other human events that do something real and, and new. Um, and we're actually sort of required to participate in the hope that we can do something new. Mm. Um, all right. Well, I am excited to pick that up and, and spend some more time with it at a, at a later date. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to see where you take this. Uh, we'll see. Like, yeah, you know, I'm someone who likes the hard questions. So anytime, anytime somebody rolls in with like, what's the hardest possible question we could be asking about this? I'm exactly. like, yeah, let's do this. Um, <laughs> well, great. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for uh, getting up early and joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to help us uh, financially pay for the little things we have to pay for to run the show, you can go to um, patreon.com slash systematically. Our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, thanks for listening. Go out there and be intelligent. Thank you.